Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let us hear the Word of God as it is written in the ninth chapter of Romans, verses 10 to 13. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here will be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul transitions into his next point by stating that his next point flows from the last point. Not only this... He has been speaking about the two sons of Abraham, the first of the triad of patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's been speaking about the two sons of Abraham, of Isaac and of Ishmael. The one son of the slave woman, Hagar, the other, the son of the free woman, Sarah. The one son of the flesh, Ishmael, and the other son of the promise, Ishmael. He has used this fact of God's choice between Ishmael and Isaac to prove the point that God's promise or God's word has not failed even though one of the sons of Abraham was not chosen. Yes, this son who was not chosen was the son of a man that God had promised that he would be a God to him and to his descendants. And yes, this son who was not chosen was marked by the sign of circumcision, the sign of the covenant. He was not chosen. Now, the Apostle Paul knows that the Jews that he is writing to and speaking to absolutely agree with his point here. None of the Jews trace their lineage back to Ishmael. They trace their lineage back to Isaac. So at least in the first generation of Abraham's descendants, they agreed and took pride in God's choice between two men. Both descendants of Abraham, both circumcised. And yet the scandal of the present day choice of God to bless the Gentiles rather than the Jews through the Jewish Messiah promised throughout the Old Testament remains a live issue. And the Apostle Paul knows he has more work to do. The Jews accepted and embraced God's choice between Ishmael and Isaac many generations ago and traced their own covenant descent through Isaac and not Ishmael. But that was then. And this is now. And now, for God to make a choice is scandalous, it's intolerable. And we see the scandal of this again and again in the Gospels, exchanges between Jesus and the Jews and their leaders, 
And we see it all across the history of the church at the time recorded in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, I'm not reading the same uh, scripture plan you are because I'm determined to finish what I have begun years ago, (laughs) okay? And so I am now at the end of the book of Acts and the beginning of the book of Romans, right? And so I just read this, listen to this. This is how the book of Acts ends. After three days, Paul's up in Rome now under prison guard in a house. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. So now this whole section has to do not with the Gentiles, but with the Jews. He called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, brethren, now the word brethren means fellow Jew, brothers, you know, like a black man talking to other black men. Hey, bro, all right. Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people, again, notice all the signals that I'm one of you, our people, or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands. Now I'm going to skip down the account a little bit to verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you, these Jewish leaders, and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. It's all ethnic, it's all racial, it's all us Jews, us Israelites, us people of the covenant, those of us who are not the uncircumcised, yeah, those of us who are circumcised. Then it says, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And a ton of leading Jews came to his house. And he, Paul, was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he's using their holy book, he's using the Old Testament to persuade them from Moses and from the prophets. And he did it from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Notice the agency, the will, would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving. Now, when did they leave? Well, they left after Paul had spoken one parting word. (laughs) The buses will wait. You know, what would be your parting word when you had been speaking to the Jews about Jesus being the Messiah and him dying and being our righteous? What would be your parting words when they began to disagree? You'd spent all day arguing. I love the fact that arguing is central to account after account after account of the proclamation of the gospel. We live in a day where truth doesn't matter, arguments don't matter, logic doesn't matter, nothing matters except how you feel and how I feel and whether you and I feel together. And back then, it was argument. Did you notice that? From morning till evening, persuading an argument. It's prominent also with the Thessalonian church. And so after he argues all day with them, trying to convince them from the actual text of Scripture, okay, At the very end, it says that 
They left after he said to them, one parting word. And undoubtedly, it was an affirming word. It was a word that was tempered in such a way as to get them coming back because after all, they were seekers. And he was being seeker sensitive. And he was gentle like a, like a nursing mother with her lamb. And he knew that he should represent Jesus well because Jesus was kind and loving. You know, think about all the ways that we today squelch our preachers. You know, you know. does your wife ever fully approve of your preacher? <laughs> no, actually not. You know, Mary Lee didn't approve of me today, yesterday. It didn't even take her till today. She yesterday said she didn't approve, you know. What did she not approve of? Well, I don't want you to think poorly of Mary Lee, but she didn't approve of me preaching this, this, this subject today. <laughs> you know? Aren't we done with that yet? <laughs> you know? Don't worry, I'm not whining. I gave serious consideration to punting. And, you know, making sure that my wife was happy. I thought about it very carefully. But I thought, now let's trust that this is the right day. It's in the right order. It's the right time. You're the right people. And it certainly is the truth. So, so what am I talking about? Well, it said that he said one more thing to them. And so what do you think that one more thing was that he said to them? After a whole day of arguing with them, trying to convince them from Moses and from the prophets, a whole day, and they were disagreeing among themselves, the leading Jews, tons of them in his home, and so he said one more thing to them. What do you think the one more thing was? After Paul had spoken one parting word, quote, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. This was the one more thing he had to say. I mean, it's inconceivable to us. Think of all the preachers you've ever known. All of them. Think of your father, <laughs> you know. Think of me. There's not a preacher in the world that would condemn his listeners like that after spending a day giving them the gospel.
And then he ends with this. He's just quoting the Old Testament right there, but then he ends with this. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They also will listen. And then it adds an editorial narrative note. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Oh my goodness. Would that people would argue after sermons. Wouldn't it be wonderful if truth mattered enough to us that we got angry with each other and argued? Okay, now listen. What's my point in saying this? Well, my point in saying this is that the Apostle Paul is fully aware that the Jews are infuriated that God has turned from them to the Gentiles. They're infuriated. And the apostles are completely willing to point out to them that God has turned away from them and that God is now working with the dirty goyim, with the Gentiles. In other words, they don't have to depend on their own perceptions to know this. The Apostle Paul just said it to them. Now the Gentiles, they're also going to believe. And so here the Apostle Paul is showing the foundation of this choice of the one and passing over the other. In this case, the passing over of the Jews and the turning to the Gentiles, and specifically God passing over the circumcised sons of the covenant, turning to the uncircumcised. Now, it could be explained, and he's been going on about Ishmael and, and Isaac, and it could be explained that his previous example, a few verses earlier of Ishmael and Isaac, is is explained easily enough by talking about the fact that they had a different mother. That they weren't real brothers, that they were half-brothers. And so you could just say, well, you know, Sarah was the chosen mother. She was the free woman. And Ishmael was the son of the slave woman. And so it's explained. I mean, there's some merit there in the origin of their genetics, you know. Uh, One is the legitimate wife and the other is the slave woman right? And so you can see that we would, we would get squirrely at this point. We'd say, well, you know, I mean, half brothers. And then I'd come back to you and I'd say to you, wait a second, they're both sons of Abraham. And it was Abraham that God made the promise. He'd be a God to them and to their descendants, to all generations. And you'd say, well, yeah, but I mean, yeah, he was the son of Abraham. He wasn't the son of the right wife. And then I'd say to you, yeah, but He was circumcised. He had the sign of the covenant. Well, you could still say, well, yeah, but Israelites are descendants of Isaac. And that's supposed to close the case, right? You know? I mean, dude, you know, none of us claim to be Ishmaelites. Come on. And so, uh, The Apostle Paul, not being an effeminate man, 
Not being easily intimidated, not desiring the approval of his audience, but desiring the approval of God. He doubles down. He says, okay, you don't want to accept Isaac and Ishmael? You want to squirrel, be squirrely about that? You want to escape that? Okay, fine, let's go to the next generation. Let's go to Jacob and Esau. And not only this, but there was Rebecca. So we've turned from Sarah to Rebecca. There was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. And so the principle, again, is the distinction between two sons, right? You don't want to accept the distinction between Ishmael and Isaac. Let's move to Jacob and Esau. Now, I want to point out something to you that you can't see here on the screen. We'll try to change this in the future, but anytime you're reading the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, and you see a word in italics, that's because that word is not there in the inspired text of Scripture. And so they're saying to you, this word isn't inspired. This word isn't in the original Greek. We're helping you understand. So the word that's supplied here is twins. That word is not in the Greek, okay? It should be in italics. Now, what's the significance of this? Well, twins is a, is a delicate way of bypassing what the Greek text says. And then you go, well, what's, what is the indelicate Greek text? Well, it's the same word that we get our word coitus from. And so here in the Greek, the word translated uh, twins is, is sort of taking us around, and it's really the reflection of Western world squeamishness, which is used to silence the Middle Eastern earthiness that the Apostle Paul uses here, and often in Scripture. What the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write here is not the word twins, but the words, Rebecca by one man conceived when she had Isaac. Rebecca by one man conceived when she had Isaac. And what is the word? Well, the word is what we say in, in English, coitus, but in Greek it's, and in Romans 13, a few chapters later, verse 13, we read this. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, and not in sexual promiscuity. That's the word koite. And sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. So again, they, they, sort, of, they sort of bypass the earthiness by saying sexual promiscuity, and we're all like, huh, sexual promiscuity, okay. And then Hebrews 13, verse 4, the apostle writes, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed, again, it's the word koite, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Now, at least that gets one of the two words right, which is the word bed, the word koite in Greek simply is sort of bed. That's its origin. That's, and so what everybody understands is we're talking about intercourse. 
And so it would be similar to somebody today saying, she bedded him or he bedded her. That is actually what's said here. So what's being said here is that Rebecca, not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had bedded by one man, okay? Well, of course, you understand that that word can easily come to stand for intercourse. But what's really being said here is not that they were twins. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about intercourse. And it's saying, Rebecca, by one man, intercourse. In other words, by one act of intercourse. In other words, one, and sometimes this word is translated seminal, emission. You see, it's, it's focusing us down on the fact that this time it's not just that it's the right dad, but it's the right mother. And it's not just that it's the right mother, but it's the right time. It's the same father, the same mother, the same time, the same intercourse. And both of them come from this. In other words, it's nailing us on the issue of genetic origin. There's nothing about the genetic origin of these two men that can cause us to say that one of them is saved and the other is damned. Now, since we are squirrely, we'll then move to morality, we'll move to ethics, we'll move to righteousness. And we'll say, well, yeah, but okay, fine, their genetic origin's identical. And I'm saying, yeah, that's what Paul says. And you say, okay, I'll grant that. And, and, and I'm saying, yeah, that's what the apostle Paul said. You say, but, but okay, I'm okay with it. And, I, and I'm like, yeah, that's what the apostle Paul said. In other words, I'm trying to shove it into your face. I don't care whether you agree with it or not, whether you're okay with it or not. It's what the Apostle Paul said. Well, I'm doing that because where we're headed, you're not going to be okay with it. And where we're headed is that the Apostle Paul then goes on after establishing the genetic origin, all right? He then says, for though... And again, the word twins is supplied. For though understood they were not yet born. So we're talking about these two with an identical genetic origin, not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. Okay. So now we're getting into the issue of whether or not one deserved and the other didn't deserve God's election, God's call, God's choice, God's salvation. And if you agree that the genetic differential between Ishmael and Isaac bears no relation to the distinction between Jacob and Esau, which you have to agree, she's just made that clear that it doesn't... Now you're going to go into the issue of whether or not one deserves the other. And all of us, you can't know anything about the account of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament without realizing that Jacob deserved to be chosen and Esau didn't. Because Jacob is just the most excellent dude. (laughs) 
Jacob is a sneak and he's a scoundrel. He's a liar. He's a weenie. And he uses his mommy. He has no masculinity, so he has to sort of dress in drag. Right? You remember how he puts fur on his arms? Go ahead. You can lower yourself and acknowledge that Scripture is graphic and funny. That's the point, people. Don't be cleaner than Scripture. Jacob is disgusting. Now, if you're smart, you're going to respond, yes, but. Anybody want to say it? What? Well, yeah, but come on. How? Yes, absolutely. Esau sold his birthright. And of course, we know that's the point in, in Hebrews, right? Don't be like Esau. Sold his birthright, couldn't get it back. With many tears, couldn't get it back. Okay? And so even if you don't want to defend Jacob, you certainly can trash Esau, right? Despising his birthright. But here's what the Apostle Paul, writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, for though they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. And so you're like, okay, in the womb, not having done anything good or bad, go on, Paul, what are you saying? And he goes on. He says, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. And you see the chute you're headed down. You know you're going down a chute that makes much of God and nothing of Jacob and Esau. Because you've already dealt with the genetics and now you've dealt with the morality. Now you've dealt with the righteousness. Now you've dealt with the character. And he says why God made that decision then. He says, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. Do you want God's purpose according to his choice to stand? Do you want it to stand? Do you want it to stand? Now, I was thinking about you as my congregation as I was preparing. And here's what I thought. I thought, I think that everybody in the church wants God's purpose according to his choice to stand when it comes to himself or herself. I think our real issue is our neighbors and our colleagues and our loved ones. I think we're all willing to say that there is nothing in us that God chose because of. But I don't think we ever want to acknowledge the wickedness of those that God has not saved. I think we're willing to talk about how sinful we are. Now, I'm not talking about right out of the gate. It takes a little bit of work to get us there, you know. I am absolutely driven crazy bonkers wacko by all these people who are reformed men who just love to trash the character of President Trump. It drives me bonkers. 
And, you know, you're probably sitting there thinking, why? Why are you so defensive of Donald Trump? <laughs> I say, I'm not defensive of President Trump. <laughs> that's not my point. My point is, everybody that talks about what an awful man is, I just keep sitting there thinking, and you? And you? It's like everybody just knows that they're morally superior to everybody else. That's what it means to be reformed today. I am reformed, and therefore I am morally superior to everybody else. And especially President Trump. And so at this point, you know, you know, they say he's a liar, they say he's profane, they say he's egotistical, they say he's proud, they say, and then if you say, well, you're a liar, and you're egotistical, and you're proud, they say, well, it's not the same. Okay, to whom much is given, much will be required. Actually, Donald Trump was given almost nothing when he grew up. You say, oh, he had, he had, he had lots of money. I say, there you are, you know? What about truth and scripture? What about preaching? What about God's word? What about the Holy Spirit? But anyhow, then they will always back down and, and start talking about sex. That's what it always comes down to, you know? You obviously don't think anything of women if you voted for Donald Trump because Donald Trump has treated women like like and talked about it and on and on. And I'm like, dude, who are you to talk? Well, I'm still married to the same woman. And at which point I say, and how many times a day do you wish you weren't? I'm sorry, women, but you have to hear the truth. I really think that the issue with predestination and election and God's decrees and grace is not that we want to claim that we deserve, but that we do not want to face the depravity of man. And specifically, we don't want to face that depravity in our own husbands and wives and children and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. I think that's the issue. Because I really have never had somebody attack the doctrine of God's election of some, his choice of some. I've never had them do it by saying, well, I deserve for God to save me. I mean, the idea of anybody saying that is ludicrous. What we really are opposed is that anybody is damned based upon their own sin. And... The idea that's implicit in our arguments is that God deserves them a chance. You know, that God should give them a chance. You know, it's like uh, Jerry Clowers, you know, the guy that never would shoot the coon up in the tree, but felt that he had to climb the tree and, and shove the coon out of the tree so that the coon could fall among all the coon dogs and have a sporting chance. You know, give him a chance. It was early environmentalism in the South. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and we have this notion about what God has to do to satisfy our sense of fairness, particularly with the people we love. God does not owe them that. 
God did not owe the two sons of Abraham fairness. God chose one, and God did not choose the other. God does not owe, okay, God does not owe the two sons of Isaac. Because he chose Isaac doesn't mean that he has to choose both of Isaac's sons. God chose Jacob, and God did not choose Esau. And God made this clear to Rebecca, the mother, while she was pregnant. That's the whole basis of the argument. Before either of them had done anything good or bad, they were in the womb. God made the choice then. Now, how do we know that? Well, because we have the account of this exchange between God and the mother of these two boys, Rebecca. This is in Genesis chapter 25. We read, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And then it says, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to her. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. God's choice. Neither of them had done anything good or bad. They both had the same genetic origin at the same moment of intercourse. And God said that the older would serve the younger. And he said it to the mother while she was pregnant. Verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And then, summing it all up, verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, that's in all caps, and that indicates it's a quote from the Old Testament. So let me read to you where that comes from in the Old Testament. It's the, last chap- it's the last book of the Bible, Malachi, the prophet Malachi. It's the first chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 1, beginning with verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And this is God speaking. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And here's his answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, and yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says... We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Now, why does it say though Edom says? Well, Edom, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Think of how they're a byword for wickedness all across the Old Testament. Those are the descendants of Esau. And the future of those descendants was determined by God when Esau was in the womb before he had done anything good or evil so that his choice and his will and his purpose would stand. So that nobody could argue it was a result of him selling his birthright. All right? Well, Edom is very stubborn, and they think they've been done wrong. You think of the whole victim culture that we have in America today, where everybody is absolutely certain of what God owes them and what I owe them and what everybody owes them, right? And Edom is just like this. Edom says, we've been beaten down. But we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. How long is the Lord indignant? How long? Forever. And so how successful, once we know scripture, how successful are we in coming up with some explanation for the ninth chapter of Romans that involves some temporary corporate identity thing of of the Jews and of the Edomites, which is one of the main tactics that people use to escape Romans 9. They'll say, well, he's not talking specifically about the identity of Jacob and Esau as individuals. He's talking about corporate identity, and he's pointing to the fact that God worked through Jacob, to create the covenant people of Israel because Jacob was renamed by God Israel and so the Jews in Israel are, and so it's, it's Israel he loves and look at God's kindness to the Israelites through history and it's very sad about the Edomites but that's just standing for those that weren't chosen by God and their, their corporate identity and, and so the minute you hear corporate identity, count your spoons, okay? <laughs> This is not about corporate identity. This is not about groups because it was Jacob and Esau, one act of conception in the womb, those persons that God chose. It's individuals. This is speaking of God's individual choice of Jacob and his individual rejection of Esau. And it's not speaking about some blessings of corporate identity, covenant people, because it says this, it says, the people to whom the Lord is indignant forever. Not temporally, not now, not then, not then and now, but forever.
I love the way this ends. I haven't read it to you, but listen to how it ends. It's just gotten done. The people to whom the Lord is indignant forever. And then it says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. You know, honestly, what is there? At the end of all this, what is there? Is there the glory of God? Or is this all about us and our sense of fairness and justice and what we think is right and and who's done us wrong and what God owes us? In other words, is this about the glory of God or is this about the error and mistakes and insecurity. I remember reading one of the main national news media broadcasters, you know, people that are paid because they can read and have a pretty face. This was like 30 years ago, and I remember this guy, oh, he was a very august personage. And I remember him saying that his God, you know, the minute somebody says, my God, you know, you kind of He said his God would never be angry. His God was not insecure. You know? As if the wrath of God comes out of some weakness in his character. As if the choice of God comes from some stinginess in his perfections. Listen, God will be magnified. God will be glorified. You know, some of you in this church, I'm gonna be direct with you. Some of you in this church, everywhere you go, what you're saying to everybody is how important you are. It's true. You just make it very sure that everybody knows how important you are. And it bears no resemblance to your position in life. Some of the most important, self-important people are some of the people that has, have the least uh, earthly accomplishments to point to. And there are a lot of ways that you can impress upon people how important you are. Okay? It can be the shoes you wear. My, my wife wishes I would stop wearing these shoes. <laughs> It can be the way you talk, your accent, the way you pronounce E-I-T-H-E-R. It can simply be your face. Trust me. I see your face as I preach. Oh, the condescension of some of the people in this church as I preach. Their pride oozes out of them. If I were to show them a movie of their faces I preach, oh, some of you, it's parading your degrees, your education, your money. But an awful lot of you, the way that you emphasize your importance is the way that you explain away all the texts of Scripture that don't quite meet your approval. And that's worse than everything I've said beforehand. And the way you show your pride is 
by your refusal to submit to the plain truth of the text of Scripture. And so there are only two categories of people. There are those people who respond to God saying, Jacob I loved, Esau I've hated, and say, glory be to God. And there are those who say, well, that's not what it means. There's only two categories of people. And you know, I would say to you this. If you want to protect God's reputation by explaining away the plain text and the plain meaning of Scripture, have at it. But here's the problem. When you do that, you will lose your comfort. Because the minute you ascribe to your loved ones that they have made bad choices... that they're not worthy, that they didn't have faith. Immediately, you have said that you have made good choices, that you are righteous, and that you have faith. And instead of trusting in the mercy of God for your own salvation, instead of trusting God's choice, what you're trusting is your own moral goodness. That's what you're trusting. And you don't want to do that. You do not want to trust your choice. You don't want to trust your character. You don't want to trust your faith. How strong is your faith? How strong is it? Honestly, it's not strong. And whatever faith you have is a gift of God. In other words, the minute you start denying that God chooses some and rejects others, it's all back on you. And that's a very hopeless place to be. Because what that does is destroy the grace of God. The minute you claim anything other than God's mercy... You're in a hopeless place because there's nothing about any man who has ever lived that merited God's mercy. Nothing. 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 Mother Teresa, trust me, did not merit God's mercy. Abraham Lincoln certainly didn't. The Apostle Paul didn't. (laughs) And Jacob? And how about Lily White Rebecca? (laughs) Okay. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you will give us humility and meekness and that we will eat your word as little birds eat the worms brought by their mother with our mouths open, our heads back in simple submission. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.